Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I, that's John who's having this vision, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped up forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll, break the seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. They will reign on the earth. And then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and they all sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one who is sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever and the four living beings said amen and the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped the lamb this is the word of God for us today grab a seat as we end, oh, I have another text actually, one more text just to throw at you. This is from John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we finish our series today, I am looping us back around to where we began. But today we're going to dig a little deeper on what is going on. We have just spent the last couple of weeks looking at how our worship is a response. It's a response of our lives, and it's a response with our songs. And today is Easter Sunday. It's the crescendo moment of our faith. And I want us to sit in the reality of the one who is worth our worship. If you are just joining us for the first time today, a few weeks ago we reflected on how all of creation is responding to what Jesus has done. All of creation. It's a loud sound. And it's a loud sound that's meant to get our attention to make us think, well, I guess the thing Jesus has done must be worth that loud sound. And so today we're sitting in the loud sound of Easter Sunday. So to begin with, very quickly, 
here is the literal story. A Jewish man, skin and bone, no one who was actually too special actually, had spent three years traveling around Galilee, Judea and Samaria. He'd been speaking of some new reality in the world that he was calling the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of Rome, not the temple of the Pharisees, a new thing. He had followers. He was starting to trend amongst the local people. Miraculous things were happening around him and radical things were happening around him too. This new thing that this man was speaking about was leading into red hot heresy. It was infuriating the religious leaders of the day so much. It crossed so many boundary lines that these leaders hatched a plan to kill this man. They managed to get to one of his insiders, a friend of this man, one of his followers. His name was Judas. They bribed him to hand this man over, and he did. They went and they got him. They dragged him in front of the governing authorities of the day, and they had him sentenced to death. This man was then subjected to the Roman death penalty system of the day. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was forced to carry his own death sentence, his cross, towards a hill, where he was then hung on that cross, painfully breathing last breaths, dying, covered in his own blood, his own defecation, his own sweat. This man, when he died, he was then buried. He was put in a tomb. And a stone was rolled over the entrance. And then, on the third day, after he had been buried, when some women came to prepare his body, they found that the tomb was empty. The tomb clothes were just sitting there in its place. This dead man, he started to reappear mysteriously to his followers. They were revealing himself, not as a ghost, but as a resurrected body. He appeared again. Death had not ended this story. That, that is the literal story. Grounded in history, grounded in real events, recorded in the Gospels, found in history in earthy locations, literal, as in it happened just like that. But with that literal story, let us now enter a metaphor. Because as Christians have reflected further on that literal story, the one I've just told you, and they placed it amongst the bigger story of Israel, and they grounded it in the language and the worldview and the symbols and the rituals of the Hebrew world. The truths that were of this literal story became wrapped in greater metaphors that emerged to have greater truths for the story. And so as we have heard, in John's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was Jesus literally a lamb? No. No, no, no. John the Baptist is tying the work of Jesus to sacrifice. This is early on in the ministry of Jesus. So for him to make this claim and to tie these threads together is a very big moment. John the Baptist is prophetically saying something of the future. He's speaking into it and saying, this is where this is tracking. And as the readers of the Gospel of John, we get into the 29th verse and go, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen to this one who is like the Lamb of God. We continue to read John's narrative and we keep that in mind. This man that we are about to read about is like the Lamb who was slain in the temple sacrifices. 
The lamb that for generations and generations and generations the people of God had been sacrificing to atone their sins, to stand rightly with their God. So you can read the story from there and you can hold the metaphor in your mind. This one that is walking and and living and breathing and doing this work amongst his people, well, according to John the Baptist, he's like the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. His sacrifice is going to do an amazing work. Alternatively, we can read it backwards with hindsight. We can stand at a future moment and we can read backwards into the story of Easter. And in the book of Revelation, we see John of Patmos, a different John, who has this vision. And in this vision, he records it in his book, Revelation, and he uses the lamb title 30 times. Actually, a little bit over 30 Over and over again, as he talks about Jesus, he is talking about a vision of a lamb. And in chapter 5, the chapter we've just read today, we see the entry point of this lamb idea. It shows up for the first time. God, as the creator, has a scroll, and he asks, is there anyone who is worthy to come and open it? And no one is. No one is worthy to come and open this, this scroll. And so John, as the one who's having this vision, he starts to weep. He's weeping because no one on heaven or earth or even in Hades is able to come and open it. But then he is told, do not weep. Look, there is a lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, who has won the victory. I mean, weird. He he uses the image of a lion. That of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, King David. The association here, why, why use that metaphor, that idea? Because this is the picture of victory. The lion is victorious. And then when John turns, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb, a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. It's this lion-like lamb, a victorious lamb. The other creatures of the vision then start to cry out. They sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll, break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. And on it goes with this phrase, You are worthy. You are worthy. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to you. You are worthy. And as we've looked at for the last few weeks, all of creation makes this huge sound reminiscent of Romans um, Colosseums as they chant, Caesar, Caesar. This is a new song. It's saying, worthy is the lamb. This one, he is the one who's worthy. They worship this lamb. This one who has done this amazing thing worth receiving all worship of all of creation. They have seen something mighty and valuable. And what is that thing? Well, it's the sacrifice that this one made, the lion-like nature of its victory over death and separation. Now, can we just be really honest with each other? This is weird. It's weird. I mean, if you were to think about reading Revelation literally, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's a weird trip, man. A lion and a lamb in one being? 
All of these sevens this, seven that, seven this, seven that, seven seals on a scroll, seven spirits. I mean, it's like this weird alliteration that's hard to say when you're preaching. What is all of this? Well, it's apocalyptic writing. And it's a device, a certain type of writing where it uses symbols that would have been known by its audience to shock the audience into seeing a reality. It would have got their imaginations going. John of Patmos is writing in this multi-dimensional symbolism. He's using metaphor. He's using symbols. They would have been known well. Today, though, this is really disorientating. Today we pick it up and we can't make sense of so much of it because we don't know what some of these symbols and all these metaphors actually are and what they mean. And that's kind of actually the hard work of reading Revelation. But the point of it is this. It's it's meant to thicken up our view of reality now that Jesus has come and done what he has done. It's 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 a powerful literary device conveying a vision. And it's a vision that is meant to get us to do something. What is it? Is it to predict the future? Is it to get our calculators out and spreadsheets and try and figure out days for this and days for that? No. No, no, no. If that's what we're doing with the book of Revelation, we are missing the point. The point of the book of Revelation is that it is to get us to worship. The goal of the book is worship. The goal of the book is an invitation into a greater reality where Christ is king, where Christ has achieved what he has achieved, where Christ has done what he has done, where he is seated doing what he is doing, and God has done this work through the Easter event. That's why we're using it today on Resurrection Sunday. We become what we worship, don't we? It's the truth. We become what we see. It's the truth. And this is what John of Patmos wants us to see. This is who Christ is. Jesus Christ was more than just a literal, historical figure. Jesus Christ is the lion-like lamb. Yes, that's a, a metaphor. That's a little bit trickier to handle. But it can be outworked and applied through thinking about the Easter story, can't it? We get it. Oh, all of that work, it was for something. It was, it was to, to convey something deeper here. God's on the work of making all things new. And he's doing it through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright says this, and now we come to one of the most decisive moments in all of scripture. The lion is the symbol both of ultimate power and of the supreme royalty, while the lamb symbolizes both gentle vulnerability and through its sacrifice, the ultimate weakness of death. But the two are now to be fused together, completely and forever. From this moment on, John and we as his careful readers are to understand that the victory won by the lion is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb and in no other way. But we are also to understand that what has been accomplished by the lamb's sacrifice is not merely the wiping away of sin for a few people here and there. The victory won by the Lamb is God's lion-like victory through His faithful Israel in person, 
through his obedient humanity in person, over all the forces of corruption and death, over everything that would destroy and obliterate God's good, powerful, and lovely creation. In this moment, we we can clearly see the victory of God. This is how God has conquered over death and brokenness. It's through this lion-like lamb who has conquered. He, the lion lamb, is making all things new, putting it back to how it started. And the result, the result is that he is worthy, worthy, worthy of worship. These metaphors aren't just found on the pages of Scripture. They've been found in symbolism throughout the church for the last 2,000 years. For the last 2,000 years, church history shows us the metaphor of Christ as this lion-like lamb. It's on stained glass windows all across Europe. It's in icons in Greece and in Russia. It's in gospel songs in the southern states of America, and it's on banners above preaching platforms in Africa. But perhaps my favorite of these images is this one, the Moravian seal of the Moravians. This was their... This was their statement of belonging and believing, and this is what it was to be a Moravian. The Moravian church used this seal, this picture of Agnes Day, the lamb who's been slain. And they have these words around the outside, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. Let us enter his way for ourselves. Let us become people who respond to him because he's worth our response. See, all of this is just looping backwards and forwards over the last four weeks that we've covered this. What Jesus has done is worth our lives. We do not stand today trying to be Christians because of some sort of isolated event that got our attention. It's the continuation through the ages of this lion-like lamb The words of John the Baptist who declared, this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That is still being proclaimed even today here in our church. It's the truth. He is the one who entered death once and for all, ending its grip on mankind so that we too can what? We can rise. We can become the resurrection people. That we too could see the Lamb and respond with our following. Kids, have you finished? What have you made? What have you made? Do you want to hold them up? What have you made? Our kids today have made their own stained glass window of the Moravian seal. Isn't that cool? The lamb who has conquered, let us follow him. I'm kind of getting some inspo there for my next tattoo, I think. The lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. Our series has been asking this of us for the last four weeks. Is God worth everything? And today on Resurrection Sunday, I just want to say yes. Yes. 
The Christ who beckons us all to follow him in his way of servant love and death-conquering victory. May we respond with our lives. May we die to sin. May we rise in love. And may we rise in life. Because that is the gospel, my friends. All things will rise. All things will rise because we worship the resurrected one.